Matthew chapter 17. I'm sure you've heard the expression, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. You guys heard that? Probably used that. And you know what that means is like, well, yeah, you're seeing just a little bit of what's happening here. But there is so much more below the surface, things that you can't see that are taking place. And when, when you talk about icebergs, I don't, we're not overly familiar with icebergs. We don't have any icebergs at Lake Waco. That's never a, a hazard that we have to worry about with our boats. But icebergs, when, when they, they're like these giant floating massive ice sculptures, but you actually only see 10% of what is really there. Most of the iceberg is completely submerged. You don't see it. You see, you know, things jetting out. The average iceberg is like 100,000 to 200,000 tons. You, they can be, the average height is about 15 stories. Now, they've actually found one in the North Atlantic that was like the the equivalent of a 55-story building. I mean, these things are just massive. But what you see is just a small fraction of what there really is. When you come to Matthew chapter 17, you probably want to think about the first 16 chapters as just merely the tip of the iceberg. We have seen so much about Jesus. We've seen him even from the, the divine way in which he was brought to this earth, the incarnation where the word becomes flesh. We see just this, these fulfillment of prophecies and we see one miracle after another. And when we see Jesus begin his public ministry, I mean, who is this man? He heals lepers. The blind are made to see. The lame are made to walk. Those that cannot speak, he actually loosens their tongue and they begin speaking and singing the praises of God. He can heal from a distance. In fact, he even raised someone from the dead. He is able to feed 4,000 men, 5,000 men, not even counting women and children. He was able to walk on the water. In fact, he is able to calm the storm with, simple, with just a simple command. And all of these, we just get a little bit of glimpses into who Jesus is, and we, we see his deity. And yet, you see Jesus, he's just a humble peasant. He's, he's a man dressed like all the other men of Israel. That is, we're just kind of getting small little pictures of who Jesus is. That is until we come to Matthew chapter 17. If you've come on this Christmas week, and you're, you're truly wrestling with the issue, who really is Jesus. You could have picked no better Sunday to be here because we're in Matthew chapter 17. You see, Jesus has made some really strong statements. In Matthew chapter 16, he he said that I'm going to build my church. Peter said, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the promised one, the son of the living God. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church upon you and that confession. Jesus also made statements like the fact that he is going to suffer and die and that he was going to be raised from the dead. Really? Could, could Jesus really come back from the dead? Jesus also uh, made other statements. The fact that he, he said, listen, if you really want life, then you have to die to yourself, pick up your cross, and you follow me. I will infuse you with my life, but you follow me. Honestly, can Jesus really give life, authentic, genuine, spiritual life, connection with God himself? And then in chapter 16, verse 27, Jesus said, you know what? 
I am going to return and I am going to bring judgment. I will recompense every person according to their deeds. Is this Jesus? Is he really going to be raised from the dead? Will he really return and will he really return as king and judge? I don't know. I'll tell you, for me, I've, I've wrestled with those questions. I read the statements, but is it really possible? I think every single person has wrestled with, is Jesus everything that he says he is? Can he really do what he said he's going to do? I mean, is there some, some sort of irrefutable proof? Is there something that is absolutely undeniable that we can grab hold on to give us that strong assurance that absolutely everything that Jesus said is going to happen? Well, that's where you find out in Matthew chapter 17. Chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, this will likely become one of your most favorite passages. Because this tells us that we can absolutely have confidence in Jesus in everything that he said and everything that he does. And that he is in control, past, present, and future. And so when we come to Matthew chapter 17 we find that Jesus had made a statement right before that. In fact, the verse before that, he said, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus said, listen, some of you disciples who have heard me, you know who I am. Some of you will not see death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus says, there are some of you that are going to get a preview of the kingdom. Some of you are going to actually see me for." who I am before you die. And Matthew does something pretty unique in chapter 17, verse 1. He actually gives a very specific time. He says, six days later. This is unique because, uh, as you see in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, the writers are directly tying this statement that some of you are going to see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom with what is just about to happen. Something so supernatural and so significant that Matthew makes this direct tie six days later, he takes up his key men. And here you find him. He took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Jesus had his 12, but within his 12, he always had his top three. And at different times, he'd actually single them out and he would have them follow him. He'd take them away. And then just like on other occasions, they go up on the top of a high mountain where Jesus is going to take them on a retreat. He's going to break them away from all the issues and the demands of the ministry. And he's going to take them to teach them a significant lesson on the mountain. Now, there's, we're not exactly sure what mountain this is. They were in Caesarea Philippi, which is far up in the northeast there. Now, it's probably Mount Hermon. It's about 9,200 feet. This is actually northeast of Caesarea Philippi. The common tourist site, they actually identify it as Mount Tabor. It seems that it's highly unlikely. That's the place that's far, way far down the south, far away from Caesarea Philippi, which we know they were six days prior to this. And yet that is the traditional site, and they make a lot of money taking people on the tours so you can go to the Mount of the Transfiguration. We're not exactly sure where it is, but Jesus takes these men unto himself, and they are about to witness something utterly miraculous. Verse 2, and it says, and he was transfigured before them. That word transfigured, that may be a, an unfamiliar word. Uh, it, it's literally the Greek word metamorpho. It's where we get our word metamorphosis. It's the idea that from within you are changed without. 
that something that actually resides within brings about an absolute change to what appears outside. So, for instance, like those little caterpillars that are crawling around your plants in the springtime. You see them and you're like, hmm, what are they doing? And then what happens is they, they build a little cocoon. And then from that little chrysalis and that cocoon, eventually, you know what emerges from there, right? Anybody remember from third grade biology? You know what happens, right? Out comes this butterfly, right? See, what happened is that, that little caterpillar had a metamorphosis. And it changed from within and it expresses itself and it actually becomes this butterfly that flies around. It's absolutely radiant. It's beautiful. It's full of life. That is what takes place here. He was transfigured before them. And look at verse 2. And his face, it shone like the sun. And his garments became as white as light. It's, Jesus isn't radiating light and glory. It's not like light is shining upon him and he's reflecting it. Jesus, it's coming from within. Who he is, his absolute essence, his nature, and his deity are now being physically manifested as they're being expressed from within. That is why his face is glowing. That is why his garments are become as white as light. He's literally manifesting who he is. It is a blazing effulgence of God. And these men, Luke actually, when he records this in chapter 9, said initially they were sleeping. Perhaps it was at night where even this brightness would be all the more shining. And so his garments, they become white as light. This, you remember the Shekinah glory that would follow Israel, would be with Israel and actually would lead them? Or when God makes an appearance like on Mount Sinai, there is this blazing bright light? It's because it's the personal presence of God himself. And God is manifesting himself because Jesus is God and he is literally radiating from within who he really is. His garments are shining. They're as white as light, speaking of supreme glory and purity and holiness. And then notice this in verse 3. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Now, these Peter, James, and John... They're, when they're, they're coming to, coming out of their sleep, they're taking this in. They would literally be blinded by what they're seeing. And then they see these two men. You see, these, you see Moses and Elijah. They are actually standing and they are conversing with Christ, who is unlike he had ever been before with them. He's radiating this light. It's immense. It's blinding. Now, there's one, some people ask the question, like, well, how in the world did they know that it was Moses and Elijah, I mean, were they wearing name tags? Hello, my name is Moses. Or did they have it embroidered on the robe they're wearing? I mean, well, you know, I, I'll tell you how I, my best answer to that. They were conversing and they were talking. Actually, Luke records what they were even talking about. And it's very likely they would have used their names, Moses and Elijah. And so they're listening because this is going to be an extremely significant event for Peter James and John. They pick up not only on what is being said, but who is saying it. And Moses and Elijah, the two men that epitomized the law, the giving of the law with Moses and the prophets, Elijah being the greatest one. And in fact, it is said in Malachi, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah will come. And so you have Moses and Elijah, and they are conversing with Jesus. And what it shows is that there is an absolute unity to all of the scripture. The giving of the law, 
the prophets, Jesus, his apostles, there is an absolute unity. You know, I've, I've heard people that are well-educated. They're good-meaning folks. But they say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he's mean, he's vindictive, and he's a God of vengeance. He's a God of law and wrath. And the God of the New Testament, on the other hand, and they kind of just make this huge just split. The God of the New Testament, well, he's kind, he's gracious, and he's loving. As if there are two different gods. Or some will say, well, he's reflecting two different aspects of his character. One in the Old Testament, one in the New. In actuality, that is completely foreign to the Scriptures. Yes, he is a God of law, and he's a God of judgment, and he will bring about judgment for all those who reject him, refuse him, and live in your sin. But he has always been a God of grace, love, peace holiness and so we find them together and they are as luke records they are actually talking about jesus departure the greek word for departure is exodus where we get our word exodus from to then when moses led the people of israel out he was leading them out of slavery it was a departure from slavery having been slaves for 400 years now god is going to take them to the promised land when jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. Luke says they're talking about the Exodus, his departure. You see, Jesus is going to lead his people not out of slavery and bondage to some sort of human government, but he is going to lead his people from slavery to sin. He is going to be the one who is going to atone for their sins. He is going to literally pay for the penalty for their, uh, their sin by actually taking their sins in his body on the cross. And he is going to lead his people out of slavery to sin into experiencing the righteousness and the fullness of life in God. He is going to do it. That is what they're talking about. And that is why Jesus came. He didn't come to be a good religious teacher and to model what good Christian ethics should look like. He came to emancipate his people from sin. He wants his people free from sin. He wants to deal once for all and satisfy God's just wrath against sin by doing so, by demonstrating his love and bringing his people into a saving knowledge of himself so that you and I might experience forever life with God. We may draw upon his power, know his strength, have the experience of his peace, be able to go through tribulation and trial and trouble and to do so because we've experienced and continue to experience the transforming grace of God. That is why he has come. He is a deliverer. He is a redeemer. And they are talking about his departure. And so Moses and Elijah, they, they appeared to them, verse 3, and they were talking with him. And now you remember, Peter, James, and John are there. They're taking this in. But look at Peter. He can't let the moment go by. He's got to say something. And look at verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, if there was ever a moment like, you should be quiet now. You know, I'm like working on that with my kids. Like, this is a good time to be quiet. You know, but no, they got to say something. Well, this would have been a super time for Peter just like, and just take it in. But no. Peter said to Jesus, I mean, he's waiting with light, and he's going to speak. I don't know what he's thinking. And he says, Lord, it is good for us. To be here. Aren't you glad we're here? It is, it's like, it is so good for us to be here if you wish. Okay, so he's calling him Lord and he says, hey, if you wish, I got an idea. I think I can capture this moment. 
Let me step in and offer a little hospitality. He says, if you wish, I will make three tabernacles. This is kind of like a sacred little shelter. And I'll make three tabernacles here. The Jews did this every year. They'd make these tabernacles that celebrated their wandering. When they were wandering the desert, they made these like little lean-tos. They stayed in them. Well, they actually celebrated this every single year where they'd actually sleep and live in these little lean-tos to remember that God had delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. They led them through the desert. And so they would do this. And he sees Moses and Elijah. Peter's probably thinking, the kingdom has come. Look at Jesus. is just radiating. can't even hardly look at him. But I'm still going to try to talk to him. And so I know I'll make... Let me make three tabernacles, three of these little lean-to shelters, one for each of you, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You see, when Luke actually records this, he says that Moses and Elijah were actually starting to depart. They were actually leaving. They're walking away. Peter sees this, and he's like, I don't want you guys to go. I want to live like this forever. At least let me make a little place for you guys to stay. And then in the midst of all this, all this excitement, and Peter starting to speak, God then just suddenly breaks in. And and notice this, verse 5, while he was still speaking. Can't you see it? Maybe Peter was totally on the ground, but he gets up and he's like, hey, hey, wait before, Jesus, if it's all right with you, I'd like to make some shelters right now. And and then all of a sudden, verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them here you have the presence of the father and he's just descending it's just right on top of this mountain this bright cloud overshadowed them and behold a voice out of the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased listen to him Peter's back on the ground now. He's not talking anymore. He's probably not thinking about making little lean-tos anymore. He's now the voice of the Father himself. God the Father had actually spoken before. Remember at the baptism of Jesus? He said almost the exact same thing. He said, this is my beloved son. Do you really want to know who Jesus is? He is my dearly loved son. When God the Father speaks of Jesus being God the Son, that is not putting him at a lower position. It is actually to speak that he is of the same essence and nature. There is a plurality within the Trinity. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so when when the Father calls him my son, he's literally saying, this is one with me. He is one in essence. He is distinct in personality. And I want you to know this. I dearly love him. Sometimes when we're trying to wrestle with who is God and and what is he really like, as as much as we'd like to see the personal side, we we're just we we have trouble kind of putting our mind around as to how loving and gracious and relational really is God. Especially if we've had earthly fathers that were less than perfect, like we all have. And and we 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 can't really grasp how personable and how loving God is. Well, if you ever want to understand what that is, here's just a little window. He says, this is my beloved son, my dearly loved son. He's everything to me. I love him. He is fulfilling and accomplishing my will. And he says this. This is my son, my dearly beloved son. I want you to listen to him. 
when we hear the word listen, we have the idea that we attended the lecture. And if we were awake like 20% of the time, we're going to count it as good. I listen. When we talk to our children, we're speaking and they're, and then, but they, you know, and like, did you hear me? They heard the words, but they didn't respond. The Greek word listen has the absolute idea that not only you heard and comprehended, but you actually obeyed. In fact, you never heard something unless you actually did what you were told. If you literally heard, you would obey. And so when the father says, listen to him, what he's saying is, not only hear him, not only understand him, but obey him. If he says that he is going to be, have to be killed and rejected, believe him. If he says he's going to rise from the dead three days after he's been killed, believe him. If he tells you to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him, he says, obey him. This is my son. He is the word made flesh. He is the incarnation of God. And he says, believe my son. Listen to him. Now, they were absolutely terrified at this point. That you could just see them. I mean, they're just down, face ground. They're not thinking about building anything. They don't. Jesus, Peter's like, I, I'm never going to speak again. He's got his face in the ground. I don't, I don't want to say anything. They hear this voice, this huge bright cloud. And they hear the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And then, verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground. They were terrified. And then, verse 7, Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. So here they are. They're face down on the ground. They're literally terrified. I mean, I mean they're having an experience where they're, they feel like they're just being literally undone. They've lost all bodily control at this point because they're literally in total fear. And then the next thing they hear, they hear the words of Jesus, and he's saying, do not be afraid. He says, get up, do not be afraid. And do you see this? Do you see what the text says? He touched them. The first thing Jesus does after this magnificent display of who he really is is he touches his men. It is so interesting, as we've gone through the gospel, how Jesus touches. He touches the, the person that's sick. He touches the leper, the untouchable. He touches his men to communicate his love. He says, I, I want you to know that I am for you and you are with me. I am your God, but I am God in the flesh. And he touches them. It's, it's just absolutely amazing. You see, when Jesus, he's no longer just glowing and radiating from within. You know, when Jesus comes back, and he promised to come back, and, it's, and the Bible speaks very clearly that the, all the world will know him. They'll see him as king of kings and lord of lords. You ever wonder how in the world they'll know that? Because when he comes back, he is going to look just like he displayed himself in the transfiguration. He is going to be radiating, bright, shining, and people will not be able to miss, and they will be terrified because they're standing in the holy presence of God. But now it's like that scene is over, and Jesus is now back. He's no longer radiating from within. Now he touches them and says, I don't want you to be terrified. I just want you to know 
who I am, and he touches me. You see, they would never forget this. This memory would be theirs for a lifetime, yea, forever. Soren Kierkegaard, he wrote this parable. It's kind of an interesting parable of a, a king. And this particular king actually fell in love with a particular woman, but the woman was a peasant. She was just a common girl in the village. And, and the king, you know, he knew that he could just say, hey, I want you to be my wife. And she would just be overwhelmed with his power and his greatness and his authority. But he, he wanted this woman to love him for who he is. And so what this king did is he actually, he became a peasant. He wore peasant garb, robes. He took a job as a peasant. He ate the food of a peasant. He actually completely vacated his throne, and he lived and experienced the joys and the sorrows and the life of a peasant to get to know this woman and to build a relationship with her and to woo her to himself so that she would love him for who he is, not just all of his power. Well, when you come to Matthew chapter 17 and the transfiguration, Jesus, Jesus has taken on peasant garb. He has, for 16 chapters, he has lived among men. He's been rejected. He hangs out with bumbling disciples that don't always understand and don't always get it. He's been ridiculed and mocked by religious leaders. He's been run out of town. His, even at his hometown, they threw him off a cliff. They wanted to anyway. They, that's what they were about ready to do. They rejected him. And yet, who is this Jesus? He's the king of glory. And yet, he temporarily set aside his, the exercise of his divine attributes that he might live among us, that we might experience a great love for him. Not that we will simply be in awe of his power, although that is so much of our relationship with God, but that we will equally be awed with his personal love for us. For he actually became a man and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, like John says, so that we would love him and experience that love. You see, we have great confidence in Christ. You know why? Because we know who he is. He is the promised Messiah. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And we have a glimpse of his glory. But let me tell you something else that gives us great confidence in Christ. And that is, we know how much he is in control. Well, look at this. See, in verse 8, after lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. They're coming to terms with what what has transpired. They're, They're trying to put a category with it. This is something that's never been experienced before. And verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, and you wouldn't expect this. He says actually the opposite of probably what you're expecting. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. You would think he would say, all right, you, you not only declared I was the Christ, the Messiah in chapter 16, you nailed that one. I showed you who I am. All right. Go tell everybody, because that will draw them to myself. You would expect Jesus to say that, but that's not what he says. He says, tell this vision to no one until when? Until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Again, he underscores and emphasizes, I'm going to rise from the dead. I don't want you to speak of this 
until that event. Why would he say that? Well, we know that the the common messianic vision for what the people had in terms of who the Messiah is, is that he was going to be a conquering military deliverer. He was going to emancipate the people. He was going to break the yoke of Rome. He's going to run them off. And then he was going to reign because he's the king of David, the king in the line of David. And life was going to once again be great in Israel. They wanted a conqueror. And Jesus knew that if his men came ripping off that mountain and started saying, listen, we have seen who this is that the people themselves would force the issue. Because the people, they weren't interested in a suffering Messiah. They didn't seem to comprehend that he was the same Messiah of Isaiah 53, the one who's going to bear their sins and his body. They didn't get that. They got the part about the military victor part, the king, the coming king, the eternal king. And yes, he is. And when he comes back, he is going to absolutely reign. But Jesus came with a mission of dying and redeeming, dying for and redeeming his people. He has to go to the cross. He has to fulfill all of Scripture. He has to completely satisfy God's justice and at the same time manifest God's love. And that's why Jesus says, I don't want you to even speak of this, not even to the other groups in the part of the 12, until after the resurrection. And his disciples, they were like, whoa, Jesus, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? You see what's happening here? Jesus is showing how much he is in control. He's telling them, I'm going to rise from the dead. I've I've told you this before. I'm going to rise from the dead. And now they're saying, but wait, the scribes say that Elijah must come first. And that's exactly what the scribes did. They kept emphasizing, just like Malachi says, that Elijah is going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, the scribes also really embellished this. I mean, they had all Elijah was going to do a lot of things. If not for even the world, certainly in Israel, he was going to make holiness out of chaos. He was going to get everything in line, and he was going to do all sorts of miraculous works. And so the scribes talked about this. And so remember when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Remember they said, well, a lot of people are saying that you're Elijah. Why would they say that? Because they fully expected Elijah to come. And when Elijah came, he's going to do all these miracles. And so that's why they thought that Jesus, well, you must be Elijah then. That's who you are. Well, they're trying to piece this together. Hey, we, we've seen who you are. You confirmed that yes, you're the Christ. You showed us. Now, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, Jesus says, verse 11, and he answered and said, Elijah is coming and he will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they, they did not recognize him. You see, Jesus says, Elijah, he already came. And they did not recognize him. You could just see Peter, James, and John going, wait, okay. And he says, but did to him whatever they wish. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. They're, they're listening. They're putting together. And this isn't the first time that Jesus actually spoke. Remember in Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist actually, while he was in prison, waiting to get his head cut off and separated from his body, he sent his disciples to ask if you, Jesus, are the Messiah. And Jesus had already told them that John the Baptist had fulfilled the role of Elijah, the prophet. And so they're listening to what he had to say. And then verse 13, then the disciples finally understood, which is a key word in Matthew, that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Do you remember 
Do you remember that when uh, John the Baptist, right before he was born, there was a vision and an angel proclaimed to Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, and said that you're going to have a son and he is going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. He is the one who's going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. He is going to come in the spirit and the power. He is going to fulfill the role of Elijah. And that is what Jesus is saying. Elijah did come. Elijah isn't going to be resuscitated or he's not going to be reincarnated. He is going to actually have his role fulfilled in someone who will dress like Elijah, who's going to have a message of calling for repentance and paving the way for Messiah. And he indeed is John the Baptist. And that is what Jesus is saying. Yes, the scribes do say that, and that is accurate. But you need to know this. Elijah has already come. And they did to him whatever they wanted to do. What did they do? Well, the Jewish leadership, they rejected him. Herod, he didn't like what he, the, some of the statements that, that John the Baptist had to say about him marrying uh, his wife, who was, happened to be his brother's wife. He didn't have a problem with that, but John the Baptist did. But when John the Baptist said, what you did is evil in the sight of God, well, that made him upset, and it really made Herodias upset. And eventually, when she had her opportunity, remember that little wicked dance she had her daughter do for her husband? Remember that? I'll give you whatever you want, even up to half the kingdom. Hey, Mama, what should I get? You go get the head of John the Baptist. And so John loses his life. They did him whatever they wanted to do, just like they're going to do with Messiah. But now the disciples are starting to understand just how in control Jesus is. He's fulfilling every detail of prophecy, and he wants them to understand it completely. You see what's going on here, friends? Jesus is displaying who he really is. He's giving us a glimpse of his glory. This is so important to Peter, James, and John. You know who the first apostle is who's going to die as a martyr because of his belief in Christ? He will absolutely not deny that Jesus is the living Son of God. You know who it is? It's James. And then, do you know who's going to be the last guy, the last apostle to die? He will actually be in exile in a rock island called Patmos. You know who it is? John. He will write the final book. He will write the book of Revelation that speaks of Jesus coming in his splendor. And then there is Peter. Peter even writes about this in 2 Peter chapter 1 about this same event where we saw and beheld the glory of Jesus. And he says, we have the prophetic word made more sure because we have seen who he is. We absolutely believe. And Peter himself would die. He'd actually be crucified upside down. Why? Because he has a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. You see, he's fulfilling his plan completely, not missing a single detail. He is the living son of God. He is the Messiah. And he's in full control of the details of our world and our life. Past, present, future. There is a legend of an Indian chief. He had these three sons and the chief recognized that he was soon to die. He'd gotten up there in age, and he wanted to pass on the mantle of leadership to one of his sons. And wasn't sure which one should be the chief. And so he brought his three boys together, and he said, Listen, you know that insurmountable mountain that is in our land? I want you to go, and I want you to climb as high as you can get, and then I want you to report back to me. 
So the three boys went off separately and they started to try to climb this massive mountain. They're climbing, climbing. This one son gets all the way up to where the tree line is. You know where the tree line is on a mountain? Where it is too cold and there's not enough precipitation to keep those trees alive. And it just dies off. And then they have just kind of rock jetting out. Well, this one son, he gets all the way up to the tree line. He takes a pine cone from there and he, and he comes back down. And then he comes to his dad and he presents to him this pine cone. He says, Father, I have climbed that insurmountable mountain. And I've gone all the way up to the tree line, up to where the rocks are. And I've brought you this pine cone second son, he eventually makes his way back down the mountain. He'd actually gotten past the tree line. He went all the way up to where the eagles made their nests and raised their young. And so he brings back a feather from one of these eagle nests. And he goes, Father, I have climbed the insurmountable mountain. I have made it past the tree line. I have climbed up to the crags of the top cliff and I have brought back to you this feather from an eagle's nest. And then the third son, Quite a while later, he returns. He has nothing in his hand. And he goes, Father, I have uh, climbed all the way up to the top of the, tr- to the tree line. I have climbed all the way up to the top of the, of the cliffs where the eagle makes its nest. And I have climbed to the very top of the mountain. And I bring back nothing except a vision of of the other side. And he begins to tell his father what lies on the other side of the mountain. Friends, that's what the transfiguration is. We get to see Jesus, the other side. We see him for who he really is. This will allow his people to live well to live with an unwavering faith that Jesus is the Messiah, that he will accomplish everything that he has said. This will allow those who die for Christ to die well because they have a vision of the other side. And Christ is going to build his church. He will forgive sin. He is going to reign. He is going to establish his kingdom. He is going to recompense every person according to their deeds. He will accomplish it for he is God. And you see, glimpses of his glory fuels our confidence in Christ. In our troubles, and you have troubles, don't you? In our trials, the difficulties we're facing, our tragedies, our ministry, it is the glimpse of his glory. It is knowing the power of Christ working within our lives. That's what gives us great confidence in the Messiah. And friends, we have a future that we need not fear. Because our faith is in the one who will not fail. We have great confidence in Christ. This Christmas, we can live unlike any other because we know who he is. This babe in a manger. Let us remember, he is the eternal son of God who has come to redeem his people. And he is alive and he is reigning forever. And one day he will return. And so this Christmas... Do you want to make the most of it? Begin each day. Just take it before all the chaos and all the cookies and everything else you're into. Take just a few minutes to get on your knees and to worship Jesus, the absolute splendorous, radiant Son of God. 
We celebrate his incarnation. We celebrate his birth. But let us remember, he is the eternal son of God who has come to rescue us and to love us. And friends, you know what? We can live well in Christ because we have a glimpse of his glory and we have a vision of the other side. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for recording this transfiguration event in Scripture. We are changed because of it. For we see Jesus as he really is. Radiant, splendorous, coming from within, revealing in for a few moments to his men who he really is, but recorded in holy writ that we might always know and always rejoice that, yes, Jesus, the one who was crucified and died on our behalf, is the risen King who is reigning in glory. Father, we have no limits, no limits placed on what you can do or who you are. Father, we pray that our confidence would be completely in you. And for anyone who has come here today who has never put their faith and trust in Jesus, Lord, would you just draw them to yourself even right now? And would they confess, yes, Lord, they're sinners? In fact, their sin has separated them from you. And Lord, that they would believe Jesus has fulfilled the mission of reconciling them to himself by being the payment for sin for them. So, Father, may we live in light of who Jesus is, how he has come, what he has done, and how he reigns forever in our hearts, in our world, and the universe. And we pray in Jesus' name.